The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. series from this gospel. God entered the garden after the sin of our first parents, asking Adam, where are you? A little later, God would ask Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Much later, the Lord would ask Jonah the prophet, do you do well to be angry? Well, God is the great questioner, the great questioner who probes the hearts of sinners to bring us to redemption. In our passage tonight, Jesus is questioned by the religious leaders who disapprove of his choice of companions and practices. And in his response, Jesus provides clarity on God's law and points to himself, the one who would come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and in doing so, to bring an end to religion and restore fallen people into a living relationship with Almighty God. Please follow as I read Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13 to the end. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let us pray. Father, once again we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Modern philosophers and social scientists from at least the 19th century have boasted in their prediction that religion would die as people became more modern, especially in Western societies. And so great men like Sigmund Freud would uh, use the Darwinian model to propose that religion was just a way of humankind to adapt to their environment, uh, to gain control and, and understanding over the forces of nature. And in their minds, religion was simply... It was similar to the mentality of a child and the neurotic, the chief trait of which is infantile, magical thinking. Well, the 20th century turned out a bit different, as the religious impulse in mankind proved stubborn against the secularist determination to impose its version of rationality, to, to stamp out all superstitious supernatural nonsense. And now the 21st century has proven even more religious as the new millennia was opened with zealots flying airplanes into iconic American buildings. Truly great Christian thinkers, Augustine and John Calvin have only continued to be proven correct in their observation that mankind is incurably religious. Well, the modernists were correct in one sense in their prediction that religion would come to an end, but not through the advances of humanistic scientific knowledge. But they also, their prediction came almost 2,000 years late. It's in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the one who declared the end of religion. All religions do not lead to God. Rather, the Son of God came to do away with religion, to satisfy the longing of every human heart with himself, the way, the truth, and the life. Tonight, I want to approach our text by examining these three questions— that Jesus uh, is, is that's posed to Jesus by his antagonist, that he's eating with sinners, that his disciples don't fast, that they break the Sabbath rules. And I believe that Jesus' response reveals with greater clarity his identity as the great physician, 
the bridegroom, and the Sabbath rest for God's people. So our passage opens with a scene by the sea. A great crowd is gathering, coming to hear Jesus' teaching. And as he's walking by the way, he calls out to a tax collector sitting at his booth and beckons him to come and be a disciple. He merely says, follow me. Now, to say that this was an awkward moment would be an understatement. The Jews hated tax collectors. These were collaborators with the enemy Roman occupiers. The tax collectors were notorious for greed, excessive taxation, extortion, as we see in the example of Zacchaeus. As we hear about in John the Baptist preaching in the early portions of Luke's gospel. So why in the world would Jesus want this guy on his team? Well, I believe the next passage provides an explanation as we see Jesus reclining in the home of Levi, better known to us as Matthew, the author of the first gospel. We're here eating with all of Levi's friends, fellow tax collectors and other various sinners. You see, these outcasts hung together. These were the irreligious who were exiled from synagogue life. They were unclean, the untouchables of Jewish society. But notice how these sinners are drawn to Jesus, drawn to his teaching, drawn to his humanity, drawn to his passion and his compassion. Well, whether out of incredulity or disdain, the scribes of the Pharisees <coughs> asked not Jesus, but asked disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, Pharisees in that day only ate with fellow Pharisees because they wanted to make extra sure they didn't become ceremonially unclean. The Pharisees were the guardians of the law to protect it from worldly tainting and influence. In fact, the the tradition of the rabbis had established that there were 613 Old Testament commandments, 248 positive commandments, and 365 negative commandments. That's, that's one prohibition for every day of the year. Well, to help the people keep the commandments, the Pharisees and other scribes and Jewish leaders, they, they set a kind of hedge by by adding and multiplying laws and commands to help prevent the pious Jew from falling into sin. But but here comes Jesus mowing down their hedge. Here he comes, fraternizing with the worst of the worst, out of place like a pastor at a bar or nightclub that is considered scandalous. The life of a new convert is messy. As we see here in the life of Levi bringing his friends to Jesus, Rosaria Butterfield, who some of you heard at Calvary Church for Harvest USA's annual banquet last week, in, in her book describes how she, as a, a former lesbian, a pro-gay university professor, professor of queer studies, how she came to faith in Christ, and her whole world was turned radically upside down. While still serving as a professor, she became quite intrigued by a pastor, Ken Smith, and his wife, who wrote her letters and befriended her and helped her 
begin to understand uh, these delicate issues taking place some 20 years ago in the academic arena. And Rosaria increasingly felt herself compelled by the person and message of Jesus. And as she was drawn to faith in Christ, she gradually saw that her lifestyle and her associations were at odds with the gospel message. And soon her gay and secular friends began to reject her for her new convictions. And in her rejection, she found community in the local church that helped to fill the void of loneliness and confusion in her life. You see, believers in this church had to pay a cost. They had to associate with somebody who was very foreign, who was very uncomfortable, giving their time and their energy and explaining things to someone who was rethinking everything that she considered important in life. This was a cost the Pharisees were not willing to pay, refusing to associate with sinners and receive an appropriate rebuke from Jesus. Jesus says to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, only people, the only people who go to doctors when they're well are hypochondriacs. Most of us don't go to a doctor unless it's absolutely necessary. The Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, is in crisis now because not enough young people, young healthy people in the 20s and 30s, are signing up. It's too expensive. And they don't need it. And no amount of appeals or raising penalties by the Obama administration will convince them to purchase this plan. It's not smart economics, especially when they can sign up later when they get sick. So in the same way, no amount of, of appeals to people who trust in their own righteousness, what, those who deny their own sin-sickness, will ever be convinced that they need to come to Jesus. When Jesus says he did not come to call the righteous, what he means is the self-righteous, those who trust in their own righteousness. Obamacare may be a great deal for the sick, but not for the well. The gospel is a greater deal. A greater deal for those of us who are doomed, who lack a righteousness of our own apart from a Savior. And God delivers where government can't deliver. You know, many people hate going to the doctor. They deny, dismiss, refuse to admit they have a problem. But many people have the same problem spiritually. They really just don't want to admit that they need help, that they might need someone greater who can rescue them from their helpless condition. Coming to Christ requires us to admit our sickness, to admit that I am a sinner, and not just as a one-time act, but ongoing every day, weekly, as we gather here as sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ. Jesus, in this passage, also means for us 
to open up our hearts and our arms to the sick and the society all around us. You know, many of us clean up our lives when we come into the walls of the church, and sometimes we're afraid to get ourselves dirty. The church does not exist for ourselves. It exists to be a place of refuge, to rescue those from sin and from falling into eternal destruction. We must be willing to receive the sickest and the messiest of this fallen, broken world all around us, those leaving behind messy lives, messy religious past, messy drug past, messy sexual past, messy political past. We must be willing to serve as nurses and technicians and EMTs to help the sick find healing in the hands of the great physician. Well, the next question we consider in the next part of our passage is when the Pharisees and their companions are asking, Jesus, why his disciples are not fasting? Now, fasting is the practice of not eating during normal meal times uh, to focus oneself on prayer and meditation and uh, self-control and restraint, to, to incite one's physical hunger and spiritual hunger to God. Now, the Pharisees, they fasted two times a week. That was quite the commitment. And they even make an appeal to John the Baptist, to, whose disciples also regularly fasted. But we see in Jesus' response to this question, he's not dismissing fasting as a bad practice, but he is critiquing the religious exercise of fasting merely for fasting's sake. As you look at the Old Testament, there's really only one time that God required fasting of his people. It was on the Day of Atonement. A day set aside for introspection, for being humble and, and, and acknowledging and confessing one's sins. When Jesus talks about fasting in other places, he assumes that his disciples would fast, in this passage referring to the fact that he will be taken from them, that he will be crucified, and in that day, by all means, they will fast. But he warns his disciples, when they fast, not to put on a show, not to declare their piety before men, Rather, to do it as a practice of devotion to God alone. Jesus indeed had fasted for 40 days while being tempted in the wilderness. But here Jesus responds to the thinly veiled criticism of his antagonist, simply claiming that the timing was not right. Do the wedding guests mourn when the bride and groom arrive at the wedding reception? Do the family and friends shout for joy right in the middle of a memorial service for a departed loved one? Of course not. When David's first son with Bathsheba lay sick and dying, David earnestly fasted and prayed, seeking God's mercy. But soon after the child died, David put on his clothes and he ate food brought to him, and when questioned about it, David merely replied, well, while the child was still alive, I considered, who knows? Maybe God will show mercy on the child. But now he's gone. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, timing is vital. 
And the pure in heart seek God, not the approval of men. So why does Jesus make this reference to not sewing unshrunk cloth on an old garment or pouring new wine into old wineskins? I believe that Jesus is simply saying that religion and the gospel don't mix. You cannot blend legalism with grace. You see, the Pharisees wanted to keep people out of the kingdom, to keep things neat and tidy. Jesus invited people in, even though they would bring in their mess with them. The Pharisees preferred to live by rules. Jesus wants his followers to live by relationship with him and God, his Father. You know, all of us bring baggage into our Christian discipleship. We all have broken ways of dealing, relating with people. We have learned ways of resolving conflict in in very worldly and unhealthy ways. We view work, we view marriage, children, money, success in ways that are very tainted with unbiblical, unhealthy thinking. We must shed them to follow Christ. See, the, the end of religion must mean we must be willing to have our minds and our hearts renewed. Our pride, our pet sins, our secret idols must all be overturned. We must stop mixing the old and the new. We must stop trying to baptize our precious but let it be crucified at the foot of the cross. The end of religion is letting our new lives in Christ be transformed, that we might bear the fruit of daily repentance, of joy, and gladness to be shared with others. On the final portion, the Pharisees now come and ask Jesus directly why his disciples violate their Sabbath rules by gleaning and taking heads of grain as they walked along the sides, the edges of the fields. Now, what the disciples were doing did not explicitly uh, violate any command in the Old Testament, uh, but rather, according to the tradition of the rabbis, this was a form of work. In fact, they had 39 different types of activities that one was not to do on the Sabbath. And notice that Jesus does not refer to their traditions. He takes them right to Scripture. And he references the precedence of David and his company who ate the showbread that was only for the priest, a violation of the law, but one done out of human need, human necessity. And then Jesus clarifies his point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees had taken the blessing of the Sabbath and made it a burden. The Sabbath was made to be enjoyed, not preserved like some museum. See, for the Pharisees, the Sabbath, their approach to the Sabbath was like building a pool for children, but imposing so many regulations on it that it could not be enjoyed. You couldn't play in it. It was all about safety without the fun. And so the Pharisees made the Sabbath about rules, not restful worship that God intended. If you looked ahead to Mark chapter 3, the passage we didn't read, 
It illustrates the contrast between the religious and the gospel view of the Sabbath. In that passage, the Pharisees' main concern is whether or not Jesus will heal a man with a shriveled hand so that they might accuse him. And Jesus confronts him with a question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save life or to kill? See, the Sabbath was for restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, repairing that which was broken by the fall. And the Pharisees had hearts just as shriveled as that man's hand. They were tribal, judgmental, and self-obsessed over human regulations. They completely missed the point. And so what's the point? The Son of Man, even he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus came to replace religion with himself. You see, the religious person says, if I, be- if I obey, if I perform, then I'm acceptable before God. But the person who embraces the gospel says, I have been fully accepted before God through Jesus, and therefore I obey. Do you hear the difference? You know, many people are anxious about whether they have complied enough to be accepted before God. You know, in religion, the purpose is to obey the law so that you can be assured that you are right with God. The religious person tells a leader like me, just tell me what to do, preacher. Just give me the rules so I can follow them and check them off my list. But the person who responds to the gospel with faith has a heart that's been broken of its pride. That, that sees his or her own sin, that, that repents and has a new faith, eager to please God. Such a person abandons religion and believes upon Jesus Christ. And for such a person, God's law takes that person out of himself, shows him how to serve God and others rather than becoming self-absorbed. Through the gospel, we have a, a new motive to study and to obey the law of God, to discover the kind of life we ought to live that might please and resemble the one who created us, who redeemed us, who delivered us from the judgment to come for our sin. Most people work very hard. Work and work and work to prove themselves to God, to others, even to themselves that they are good people. And that is quite exhausting. Because that work is never done unless we rest in the gospel. Jesus is God's Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath when we rest in him by faith in his blood and his life, his death, his resurrection. We can refrain from our labor. On the Sabbath day, we refrain from labor. We avoid unnecessary work and commerce. We gather for worship. But but Sabbath is more than just one day in seven. It's a daily resting in the work of Christ. Jesus finished our work on the cross, so we no longer have to prove ourselves to anybody. When you rely on Jesus' finished work, you can know that God is completely satisfied with you. Your studies show that our, our bodies need more than just casual light rest. We, we need a deep rest 
for our muscles and our organs to fully rejuvenate. Jesus experienced restlessness. When he was separated from God on the cross so that you and I might have deep and lasting rest. To know know that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are accepted before Almighty God. The final verse in the Mark 3 passage I alluded to is very telling because it, it reveals the hearts of Jesus' enemies. You see, that the Pharisees were the religious conservatives. The Herodians were the irreligious progressives. They hated each other. But they united together with one goal, to eliminate Jesus. He was a threat to them. They were determined to get rid of him. You see, Jesus is a threat to the left and to the right. The gospel is offensive to religion and irreligion. It's rejected by moralism and relativism, both traditional values approach to life, and the progressive self-discovery, you know, that choose what's right for you, both paths are determined to be one's own Savior and Lord. Both are hostile to the message of Jesus. Both lead to self-righteousness and condemnation. The moralist says, well, the good people are in, and the bad people are out, and, and of course, we're the good people, right? But you know, the, the self-discovery person says, well, the progressive, open-minded people are in, the judgmental bigots are out, and we, of course, are the open-minded ones. You see, we have this sick tendency to be self-righteous about our own self-righteousness. Oh, we are so much better than those people over there who think they're so much better than everyone else. The gospel does not say that the good are in and the bad are out. Or that the open-minded are in, or the open-minded, closed-minded are out. Rather, the gospel says the humble are in, and the proud are out. A couple years ago, I was wrestling with a a lung, a a wheezing problem. For the better part of a year, and I I was being stubborn about it, I wasn't dealing with it, and finally I went to the doctor to deal with it. Uh, to get treatment and get on an inhaler and get meds on a daily basis. You know, you don't go to a doctor so that he'll tell you that you're sick. You go to get a clear diagnosis and a treatment to fix the problem. You you go to deal with a health problem that you can't deal with because you need treatment. The religious believe they can heal themselves that they can make themselves right with God. But Jesus calls sinners who know that they are unable to save themselves. The secular university that I attended had a religious studies department, and a few of my friends took what was then called comparative religion. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but I heard about the class that, you know, instead of talking about belief systems between Jewish and Christian and Islam and other religions, all they really talked about was like diets, foods and rituals and regulations, just boring, irrelevant stuff. You see, the problem was that class, that professor was asking the wrong questions. 
just like the Pharisees. Asking the wrong questions, not seeking the one who can answer our deepest questions, our deepest longings. As followers of Jesus, I urge you to ask the right questions to whom we must go to find healing, to find hope, to find forgiveness, to find salvation. To whom do we go to grow, to love, to know, and serve the living God that we might enjoy him and glorify him forever and ever? Come to him, the great physician, the bridegroom, the one who is a Sabbath rest for God's people. Let us pray. Our gracious God, our Lord and Savior, we praise you and thank you that you have put an end to all human, man-made, worthless religion and have revealed in your Son the true way to the living God to be reconciled by his life, death, and resurrection. Help us to be a people who, who live in right relationship with you to testify to the greatness of your power and your grace. May we walk in that hope this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.